Chester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books by or about women, and this is episode number 24. And we'll be discussing uh, The Weight of Him and The Essex Serpent today. Hello, Kendra! Hello, Autumn. (laughs) I am very excited to talk about the books today, because I actually just finished The Weight of Him today, the day that we are recording. So it is fresh in my mind, and I am prepared. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, and I just finished The Essex Serpent yesterday, so... Isn't that serendipitous? It is very serendipitous or procrastinatory, however you look at it. So, anyhow... We're creating new words today. We... Again. <laughs> we should put definitions of the new for, words right? down at the bottom of the show notes at some point. Well, I don't even sure... I'm not even sure that I know what they mean. So, anyway, this month is our birthday month, which we are super, super, super excited about. And this month, our theme is podcaster's choice so we just picked a bunch of books that we really wanted to read or had heard about for a long time and decided just to read all of them in one month because they didn't really fit in yes. any of the other and themes. we've been looking forward to a lot yeah. of these we've been talking about these for a long time either to each other or on social media so it just seemed fitting that we read books that we're really looking forward to. And sometimes you just want to browse your shelves and pick something. So actually one of my picks, uh, The Clay Girl, kind of happened sort of that way and kind of took over and was like, okay, I'm going to be in the podcast now. I was like, okay, that works. Well, And and that's like one of our (laughs) discussion books is a book that was mailed to us only two months ago. So like this list has changed multiple times in the last two to three months, I would say. Two to three days, maybe. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah, so we're excited to talk about um, these two books. And but I think before we get started, we did want to mention um, we had mentioned it last time that we now have a bookstore. So any of the books that we talk about on the podcast, you can purchase directly from us um, using links in the show notes or on the website. We do ship internationally, as far as we know. Um, a third party person ships them for us, and we have been told that they ship to most countries internationally. Also, we have a Patreon page, and our Patreon, we decided to set it up at listener request, and you can go and check that out. Um, If you become a patron of the podcast, you will get access to different things like bookmarks or live streamed episodes or question and answer times with us or you can help us pick out a newsletter a special edition newsletter for our patrons only so there's all kinds of things over there at several different levels and so you can kind of pick whatever's best for you and we are really thrilled to start this it's a great way to kind of get to know our listeners a little bit better and to kind of get some input and some feedback about how to make this podcast better and the truth of the matter is is we would not even have this podcast without you our dear listeners so we are like super thrilled to just kind of have this thing yeah. and just kind of see where it goes so yeah so be sure to check that out yeah we greatly appreciate all of your help you might have noticed that our sound is a lot more smooth less like popcorn oh yes and so that oh, is yes. really from you guys so everything that comes in uh, through the reading women podcast goes back into the reading women podcast either for base cost or improvements like sound because now we don't sound like we're in a basement anymore even though we kind of are still in a basement i know and we're like hiding from the world and our like internet's going in and out you know so it's like wait a minute till the cat stops crying and then we can finish this conversation Uh, yeah exactly or sirens or or whatever so it's really 
So it was really nice. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. We could not continue to make this podcast better. And we love your feedback. And I'm really excited to bounce new ideas off, you know, patrons and super fans and all sorts of things. So yes, thank you very much. Which brings us to the whole reason that we're here, which is to discuss our books this month. As we've talked about before, uh, the second podcast of each month is kind of like, I don't know, a book club of two or three or however many are listening. Um, so my first book is The Weight of Him by Ethel Rohan and is published by St. Martin's Press. So I had not heard about this book before, and then Ethel sent us a copy very graciously. And um, when I saw that it was blurbed by Eowyn Ivy, who wrote The Snow Child, I was like, hmm, well, I adore her, so that's a good recommendation. And then I, when I told Kendra that we were getting sent a copy, uh, she told me that Roxanne Gay had given this book five stars. So I was like, whoa. You have to read it now. Right. It's like mandatory reading at this point. And you can look and see it has like all kinds of accolades, um, which would made me super sad that like I'd not heard of this book before. So the kind of the high level of as a summary, just to kind of explain what the book is about, we are introduced to Billy and we find out that early on that Billy Brennan's son, Michael has killed himself and it's kind of taken a toll on the family because he was the oldest child of four and Billy at least thinks he was very close to his son and they live in a small Irish town. The eyes of the entire community are on them as they're trying to deal with this very weighty topic, which is a 17 year or 18 year old son who commits suicide. So we also find out early on that Billy Brennan weighs 400 pounds. And as a way to kind of help process his grief, he is inspired by a walkathon that happens at his kid's school. And he decides that he is going to lose 200 pounds as a way to raise awareness for suicide prevention. He also decides that he's going to have a march through the town. And he also decides that he wants to like create a documentary about suicide and the families that have been affected by it. So he's just bringing a lot more attention to his family in this already very small town. As the story progresses, we kind of learn a lot about how the different members of the family cope with grief um, and how the community copes with grief. And so right off the bat, there, it's two like very two topics that are like really, you know, very serious things to consider. We decided to add some questions about each of the books that we're going to discuss today that we are going to put on our Goodreads because we have been doing random, you know, open-ended discussions there and we thought that, you know, you might ask, want to comment on what we're talking about here in the podcast. So we have some questions that we're going to go through because um, we both were really fascinated with both of these books and found similar things. So our first question is, what is your initial impression of the book? So at first I wasn't this is one of those books where like you finish it and it just kind of washes over you and you kind of take a couple days to process it. So I had a couple first impressions. One was I wasn't sure at first if the portrayal of Billy was that great, like because he is very like obsessed with his, his weight. And so, you know, does, run the thought of like, okay, well, is this right? Or is this not right? And then like with the suicide, like, you know, we learn about a lot of it from Billy's perspective, but not so much from his family's perspective. 
at first I was kind of like, oh, well, I want to know more about his wife and his kids. But then like you kind of realize that this book is not about them. It's about Billy. And like the title, I think as we, the title, I feel like has a couple of meanings. So it's like the weight of him is like literally Billy's weight, like his 400 pounds that he's been carrying around. And then he's also carrying around basically his phantom son, the memory of his son with him, like everywhere he goes. So it's a lot, like it, it definitely took me a couple of days to kind of sort through how I felt about it. Yeah. It really has just a lot going on. And you quickly realize that Billy is an unreliable narrator. And when I first started reading it, you know, I, I went into it a little biased because Autumn had been gushing about how much she loved it. So I knew it was going to be good. Like there's like a 99.9% chance it's going to be good at this point. So I went into it and I just, he goes into it and he starts thinking about, you know, he's, he talks about his weight. And I really thought it was amazing just how much I missed. Like, I didn't realize how people treated him, how people wouldn't take him seriously because of his weight or whatever. And you learned a lot of things that you didn't realize. So we learned how people who are overweight are treated or carry more weight than is considered okay. And he does make a point, she does make the point in the story that at the very beginning of the story, Billy goes to his doctor and the doctor's like, you're basically killing yourself and there is a parallel there of he's basically committing slow suicide by eating the way he does and so he tries to change because the catalyst being his son's suicide so yeah the initial impression was the setup was really moving and there was but there's a lot of humor in it even though it deals with the heavy topic of suicide and loss and grief there's a lot of humor in it because Billy is hilarious. Yeah, and it's not... So maybe that's what we should move into next is kind of like Billy examining Billy as a character. And it is like a surprisingly not depressing book. Like you would think that something about as heavy a topic as teenage suicide would just be heartrending. But Billy himself is a very lighthearted, jovial kind of person. And you could almost like his family takes it at the beginning almost as if he doesn't care that his son has died. Like they know he cares, but they feel like he's just capitalizing on it and using it for his own self promotion. And it does seem that way at the beginning, but as you get deeper into the story, you kind of realize that his seeming like lightheartedness is a coping mechanism. It is a way that he is able to kind of, pull himself through every single day. I guess one of the things I was impressed with him is that when he talks of the way she describes food in this book is amazing because mm, yeah. Billy is incredibly optimistic. Like he has these grand plans. He's going to lose 200 of his 400 pounds and he's going to have a huge walkathon in like six months. Like he's going to lose it in like yes. six months, which is ridiculous. And then like he's going to turn into a documentary and you're, you're kind of like, dude, you're ridiculous. But because he is, he's very optimistic, he actually is able to achieve something. It may not be as big as he wanted it to be, but it is huge. And you can see like the way he talks about his food addiction and how it calls to him and anything stressful happens. Like say he meets the cop who found his son when his son committed suicide, like stressful situations drive him to eat food. And I really appreciated how she reinforced that even though we, the readers, are forgetting that Billy is thinking about food 24-7, Billy is really thinking about food. And then as the book goes on, you can tell he's thinking about other things and that his taste buds are changing. And um, I thought that was just 
really great how she did that. One of the things I really appreciated that she did in the story was showing how why Billy's so obsessive about food and kind of how things in his childhood and the way he others treated him caused him to treat himself and then kind of how that extends out to how his he subconsciously was treating his kids similarly to the way his parents treated him which I'm always fascinated by those kinds of stories and so she very not and it's not explicit like I was talking to Josh about it the other day as I was kind of processing the story and I'm like as I'm describing it it sounds like it's really like on the surface like what she's doing but it's not like you don't realize until the end and you're talking about it how masterfully like she ties all of these things together without you really knowing it every time he would go to do something more and his family couldn't take it you know that he probably shouldn't be doing a lot of like really in your face in the small town community stuff like he posts flyers everywhere he doesn't talk to his wife first about this this walkathon thing and his entire family is really stressed out about it. But then they eventually see that this is how he's dealing with it. This is how he's handling his grief, that he's using that energy to do something good. And even though he, he screws up a lot, he still has a good heart and he really is making a difference. And I think the thing too, is that different people process grief in different ways and there's no right way or wrong way to process something traumatic that happens to you. So we do get an insight into that, even in the other families who he meets who have had kids who've committed suicide. She does show how the grieving process looks different for everybody and how that's that's okay. So Billy just happens to process it by being really optimistic because I think he's the kind of person where if he wasn't optimistic, it would literally kill him yeah i agree and i've seen some we were talking we've talked about this you know pre-podcast but some people have been really irritated about how optimistic he is but i don't think it's a flaw of the writing or characterization it's obviously his character flaw like that's his biggest character flaw and that's I mean, that's the whole point. I think sometimes literature people, you know, scholars, you know, Brooklyn bros doing literary things, um, like it's like pessimism or stoicism or whatever is way more fashionable or whatever than optimism, which is absolutely ridiculous. A character flaw is a character flaw. Right. So anyway, I will spare all of our listeners the <laughs> rest of that rant, <laughs> but I... I thought he was, I did find him irritating at times, but I did appreciate that his optimism actually drove him to do stuff. He is a little much, but I think that's just part of who he is. One of the things that I kind of noticed in the book was the role that media played in the novel. Billy decides early on that he wants to create this documentary, so he goes through the trouble of finding someone to make the documentary for him. And he ends up finding someone whose nephew killed himself. And so this documentarian is very passionate about suicide. And so it seems like it's a really good thing at first. And then you kind of find out as the story goes on that the guy who's making the documentary has taken a very cynical point of view on suicide, which actually is interesting that he's very angry. I just realized that. Yeah, he's very angry and he's very bitter about it. And so he kind of runs roughshod over these families that they want to interview. So Billy's wife is concerned that making a documentary will 
what is it like so exploit yeah exploit and then they're also concerned that about like copycats because one of the families in the the book their son kills himself and then like three months later the daughter does the same thing so there's all of this talk about like how the media affects how people perceive suicide and how it maybe contributes to it i don't know what do you think kendra i agree i thought that like it was sort of like she presented a guy dealing with his son and then she presented the documentary guy as like how not to handle you know your grief with suicide and so i thought it was very interesting how billy will not talk about well he will not say committed suicide he just says suicide or you know when he died or whatever and it never actually goes into a ton of detail about how his son michael hung himself like you don't get the moments of the actual suicide but with the documentary guy you get how you know he said he scraped the brains of his you know nephew or whatever off the wall and he repeats it like multiple times and you can see like how they each handle it and i feel like billy definitely does a better job and less like sensational he doesn't sensationalize it you know he talks about how horrible it is, but it's not like he exploits it or uses it to create false emotion. Yeah, and I think that there is a balance between raising awareness and and making a media spectacle. And I think that's probably one of the lessons that Billy learns in this whole process is that there is a balance between those two things and that it's a very fine line and you kind of have to kind of navigate it as you go. Because... It is true, like, they do put on the book that, like, it's a top killer and that nobody's really talking about it. So silence clearly isn't the answer, but then the extreme opposite of that, which is spectacle, is not the answer either. I thought it was very handled very well, especially recently we've seen all different media show it in a different way. And I felt that this handled that topic of teen, because Michael, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but he's actually like 17 so it really, I think it, this book handles the topic of teen suicide a lot better than uh, something else that has recently come out, which I will not name. But so this actually goes into the last question, which is, uh, what did you think about the pairing of suicide and weight and why did she do it? And what are similarities, dissimilarities that we've seen? And I think definitely just the emotional weight of depression and mental illness. But I also thought it was interesting that the weight of him is not just, you know, you have the literal weight, but also the weight of his grief and his son's memory. And as he heals, as he continues his project of the walkathon, he loses weight. So it's like he's kind of losing the grief slowly with his son. And I think just the parallels and the symbolism there are just excellent. Oh, absolutely. And I think too, the Billy comes to realize at the end that not carrying around the burden of the memory of his lost son is not being disrespectful to him. That it's okay to move on and try to make things normal and try to like return to a sense of, you know, just living. Um, and it's not doing a disservice to him. So and you can definitely see that with his wife, who is the total opposite of trying to, you know, be as normal as possible. Well, Billy is not like that. And I think they both together find a balance. And I was a little bit, at first I was like, why weight loss and suicide? Because those are two things that you wouldn't really consider at first. Like if, if, if you walked up to someone and said, yeah, I read this really great book about weight loss and suicide. You kind of be like, wait, what? Like, why? Like, <laughs> it's not exactly an obvious pairing, but they really work well together. Like they really do kind of show the physical, like, I feel like death is 
this very abstract kind of concept. So in a lot of ways, so pairing it with something as tangible as weight loss and as visible as weight loss is really great way to kind of show the contrast between those two. Yeah. Yeah. This book really delves into stereotypes about mental illness and uh, suicide and Ireland being a predominantly Catholic country. You have a lot of the idea that it's a sin and a lot of this stuff that goes with it. And it really doesn't deal at all with, you know, the mental illness part and just the feeling of it. And so I just really moving when like Billy finds, he's trying to figure out why his son did it. Cause he had no idea his son was struggling. And then he finds these like vinyl record things. And his son has written alternative lyrics about how he feels on these sleeves. And Oh my goodness. Heartbreaking. Oh my stars. It was and we and really, we haven't even really talked about this. We don't really have time to go into like Billy's relationship with each, with his wife and each of his children. But I mean, the death of his son really opens up all of the holes in his relationships with his children and kind of gives him a chance. Like, because I think that's the thing is he's like, why? Like, how did I miss this? I was close to my son, and then he realizes after the fact that he really on the surface level was, but he's not really close to any of his kids. Like he's thought he was, but really wasn't and wasn't actually like interacting with them in their lives. So very thought provoking sort of stuff. (laughs) We could probably go on about this forever. Especially since I just finished it today. I could just go on. (laughs) We could probably go on and on, but yes, much kudos to Ethel for writing this book. Yes. Thank you, Ethel, for emailing us and for sending us a copy of this book. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. And that's why one of the reasons we decided to have it as a discussion book was to kind of get the name out there because it is definitely one that should be on your radar. And so be sure to add The Weight of Him by Ethel Rohan to your growing TBR stack. Speaking of your growing TBR stack, our spot today is for Quarter Lane again. And we are really excited to partner with this company because we are a similar age. We share, you know, a birthday month and we've watched them grow and we've become friends via social media, especially Instagram. If you haven't checked out their Instagram, you definitely need to. All the links will be in the show notes. Um, but they have just released their quarterly box for the summer. So each season they have a fiction box and then oftentimes they'll have different bookish companies or people curate different boxes or they'll partner with a different company that does cool covers for books or whatever. So you can go check out all the different boxes they have. They also have like a yearly subscription and a bunch of different things. The box that I got is the summer box and that has a variety of different uh, books in it. So it has the levers by Lisa Ko, uh, which we talked about last episode. Incidentally, that was not planned. I promise you. We're just on the same wavelength. Totally. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Tastes are similar. Um, And also I'm super, super excited to see Saints for All Occasions by J. Courtney Sullivan, also about Irish women. And then there's a thriller, a mystery thriller in there that's Magpie Murders um, by Anthony Horowitz. So yeah, I'm really excited about this box. I'm excited to do some summer reading. Um, I go on vacation uh, this month. You'll just have to take out some more non-essentials, you know, like shoes or stuff to make more room for books. Yeah, and I usually stuff them in my carry-on. Um, so yeah, so you can use the promo code readingwomen15 to get 15% off uh, one of these boxes, and it, that is good for the entire month of June. So you'll definitely want to check that out because we love them because they're just so cool. 
you definitely check out their website. They have interviews and um, all kinds of cool things coming out. So that is Quarter Lane. I'll just keep talking. Okay, so I have been going on about this book since last June, and that is The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. And in the U.S., that is out from Custom House. In the U.K., it's Serpent's Tale, um, which is actually the edition. If you see pictures on our social media, it's because we have the U.K. edition. This is book is set in the 1800s. It's about Cora, who... A uh, husband has recently died, mysteriously died, in London. And so she decides to go to Essex to find the Essex Serpent. So she takes her son and she takes Martha, who is like a lady's companion, sort of like in uh, Rebecca and Daphne du Maurier, um, where the unnamed narrator is like trained to be a lady's companion. And then they go to Essex in this random like rural cottagey house thing. And so she just goes and starts running around the moors. She's really into Darwinism. She's just read The Origin of Species, and she's really excited about it. And then she meets this parson, and he's a very religious man, and he's very reasonable. And so she and he have a bunch of conversations about religion and secularism and science and a lot of interesting things. At the same time, you're trying to figure out what the Essex Serpent is, but there's also a storyline where Martha is, she's a socialist, so she's, you know, you learn about class that way, and my goodness, there's a lot going on in this book. There is a lot going on in this book. So let's start with our first question, which is like, all that said, what were your first impressions of the book? I first really got into this book because a friend in the UK recommended it to me, and I was blown away, and I was just amazed at how she captured the 19th century gothic novel-ish in, like, a modern form. So the characters, I I don't think they're quite accurate about what the likely sensibilities would be of people at that time. However, because it's a novel, it's fiction, um, I think it really works because you get to enjoy essentially a 19th century style novel, but the people have modern sensibilities. So all the irritating sexism and oftentimes classism are exposed or dealt with or, you know, taken care of while normally they wouldn't be if that makes sense. It does make sense. Because as I was reading this, I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't really feel like Dickens (laughs) or (laughs) anything like that. And the way I kind of interpreted was I felt about the characters the way I think the characters would have viewed themselves almost. Like it did seem more modern, but I was like, well, if you actually lived back then, then your present tense would be modern, right? Like, in essence. Very true. And honestly, I think it would have been weird if it had been, like, all of the old-timey kind of verbiage. And so she has enough of the style in there that it feels like it, but it's not like she dumps it on you, that it's overwhelming. It's more like she peppers it to give us the illusion. Right, because there's lots of descriptions about you the think- landscape. <laughs> Which I feel like is very classic Victorian literature. Like, let's talk about this grass for three paragraphs. It reminded me of, of like, Weathering Heights. Like, the moors and... I mean, did it remind you of, like, Sherlock Holmes and the... Yes, like, the beginning of The Hound of the Baskervilles. I I don't know. I've never read Sherlock Holmes. What? How did I not know that? I feel she... (laughs) I don't know. First Gossip Girl last time, and now this time. Kendra hasn't read Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I haven't. I do own, I think, all of them. Yeah, I own the Giant Collected Edition, but I just haven't read any of them. So I guess that does segue into our next question, which is how does it differ from the classic 19th century novel? And we've already talked about that a little bit, but I think the 
big thing is definitely that at the time, since Darwin's book just came out, people were still way more religious than they were, like, science atheists. So you have Cora, who kind of re- represents that, and Will, who represents religiousness, you know, kind of going at it, while in it would be totally different if actually in a 19th century novel and, you know, religion would still be the dominant, I guess, perspective, maybe? Not of intellectual whatevers, but you know what I'm saying. The average Joe. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's definitely set in a turning point. I think even with Martha and her socialism, you know, women at this time, like, they're always on to Cora about how she dresses like a man, and then Martha very much becomes active politically, which is not, just not done. So I think we kind of get an insight into that, which if in most Victorian novels, I feel like the women are like char women or like get a backseat and, or they die in childbirth and like, that's their only role. So I do feel like the female characters were definitely fleshed out a lot more and definitely, um, all of the repressed sexual feelings that are in Victorian novels are not as repressed in this which just kind of shows, you know, a more human side to this whole era. Yeah, I I did think that it gave enough to make anyone who loves a good 19th century novel really into it. But then the irritants, as we said, are kind of washed away a bit. And I felt like this isn't magical realism, but you always wonder if the Essex Serpent is real. And at the end, we see that it's like this giant like fish thing and it had died off the coast and then it actually lands and there's like this smell that happens for several months or weeks or whatever before they actually the fish actually hits the you know sand and so it's just really interesting because you kind of wonder will she find a living fossil will she not find the living fossil what is the essex serpent there's just a lot of different things and i feel like the essex serpent here we go into a bunch of little symbolism, like that Sarah is like the temptress, like she is in the Garden of Eden, like she is the serpent tempting Will, who is, you know, religious leader. So it's kind of playing on that imagery. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about like the meaning of the Essex serpent, because I think one thing that I wish I'd known, well, I don't know if I wish I'd known it or not, like, I really was expecting some sort of let's track down the serpent's sort of story, which it is in a very literal sense. But the question is, what is the serpent? <laughs> because I I think it could be many things depending on what part of the book you're in and depending on which character you are. So as Ken- Kendra just mentioned, like when the serpent is first harassing the townspeople, well, at one point, one of the people in the town, Aldwinter, which is this very small town where the minister and his wife and family live and that Cora comes to, is that one of the townspeople says near the end, well, none of this trouble started until you came into town, which I think is true. Like, she was the serpent. I think Cora's husband is a serpent in a sense. He's a jerk. Yeah, he's a complete jerk. We find out why she was not sad when he died. And you were like, okay, I also am not sad. I'm quite happy that he died. Right, because he was an abusive... Anyway, so... um, (laughs) But I think, too, that the serpent in a real sense is an image that the townspeople create because of their fear and like the general struggles and hardships that they have. And 
kind of a lack, I would probably say a lack of education. Like they're like, Oh, well our crops failed. Well, it, it's not because of the weather. It's because of the serpent, you know? So they just kind of jump to conclusions. It's like superstition. Yeah. Super. That's yeah, definitely. So, and then too, you have that will, the minister refuses to call it the serpent. Like he calls it the trouble. And if you take it from that, which is his way to kind of make it more rational and but at the same time, it makes it broad enough where, as you look for the trouble, it's all encompassing in everybody's lives in this book in different ways. I think it's also interesting that we kind of are introduced to the serpent because Cora is really interested in evolution. So she wants to find this living fossil. And so when she goes to the town, it's sort of like the town is introduced to Darwinism and to like this the whole evolutionary theory and a story like that is tempting the traditional religious sense of the town which is represented by will um, who is the leader and there's like a little serpent that's carved on the edge of a pew in his church and that was supposed to something is ward off the serpent when it was here before or something something like that i don't yeah they, they there's a lot of vagueness in the book in some places like, not intentionally. I think it's just, like, an aura of mystery where we don't get all the answers at the yeah. end. And I think I think that's okay in this and how she's Oh, I think it's totally okay. Sometimes it's just a hole, a gaping hole of nothingness that authors really need to fill. But this time, it's, it's well done. It's there for a reason. I think we're going to overlap our next question a little bit. So why don't we just jump to... Um, what do we learn about faith and reason from interactions between Cora and Will? So let's talk first about Cora uh, and Will, just to kind of set. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit already. But so Cora is an aspiring naturalist, and she seems to do that as a way after her husband dies to kind of reclaim who she was before she got married. And I think she's just has a like a second wind after her husband dies. And so she decides that she wants to make some sort of big scientific discovery and have it put into a museum. So she does a lot of reading about archaeology and um, science, and, you know, she's really into, like, finding fossils. And so she's definitely, like, hardcore on the science, hardcore reason side. Yeah, and but on, on Will's side, I think, you know, he, as I mentioned last time, one of my biggest pet thieves is religious leaders almost solely being represented as either cult leaders or totally ignorant or abusive and or abusive. And Will is none of those things. He loves his family. He loves his wife. He's rational. He's a very intelligent man who has real reasons why he believes what he does and his faith in God. And I think that they both are very much attracted to each other, which is obviously fascinating, and that they really just... You know, they argue back and forth, they write these amazing letters, and it's sort of like there's space for both of them. You know, like they, they, I don't know how to describe it. I think Will thinks that at first that Cora is just kind of a pampered rich woman out on a whim. So not reason, not reasonable or rational at all. And then he comes to find out that she's actually... Like, I think he says at one point that he wouldn't know she was a woman, like, based off of how she thought or something like that. Oh, Will. Oh, Will. Oh, Will. 
Oh, well. So then Cora thinks that because she envisions him as this, like, gray-haired, grumpy old parish leader out in the middle of nowhere who doesn't read and is completely out of touch with the world. And what she finds is this man who his friends thought would be a lawyer. And he, even though he works in this very often cloudy area of faith, he's actually a very reasonable, rational, well-read, well-respected man. So kind of they had these preconceived ideas about what the other would be, and then they have to, like, confront it head-on and find out that they were both wrong. Which I think is very—is one of the most fair and balanced perspectives on um, a person of faith that I read in, you know, fairly while. I was really impressed with how she handled that. And Will and Will is married, and but he ends up falling in love with Cora. But his wife is basically either going out of her mind or dying— or, or both. both. Um, yeah. So, so, but, and she knows that she's dying. So she wants Will to f- marry Cora when she dies. So she doesn't really have a problem with this, per se. Um, but obviously, Will is very convicted about it. And so, how he deals with that, I really appreciated that there's man of faith can do something stupid, but then he can, you know, there is forgiveness and. You know, he makes it right, so to speak. And it's not like he considers himself a complete and total hypocrite because, you know, he falls in love with Cora, but he does what he needs to to make it right, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think, too, she kind of shows how I think we get these ideas that the that we're happiest when we're surrounded by people that we agree with. But I think she very clearly shows that, especially in the case of Stella, like Will and Stella have no arguments that we know of. (laughs) And so she's very passive. She's intelligent. And it's pointed out several times that she's really intelligent, but they don't really have discussions and they are not really combating with each other that way and so she's so, and it's interesting that she's sickly and then Cora who's like this very volatile kind of idea person is is described several times as being full of life and vital so in that way we have like she's kind of showing us how conflict is good and how conflict brings life into relationships. I really loved the dynamic between them. I really like the ending, how Cora has to face the imperfections and her new self that she now embodies since her husband died. She just needs to deal with that. There's a guy that we haven't even talked about. I know. I was just thinking about like, <laughs> who loves her and she ignores him. And he's like this surgeon who's also a person who agrees with Cora, which is interesting that the people who agree with Cora oh, but they don't I didn't think about that. I just I just got that as I was talking. But anyway, so he's a surgeon, like a one of the best surgeons in the country, and he like he loses what is it happens to his hand? He has an accident. He gets he knifed. Gets knifed in a yes. in the bad part of town. And so which he, is a whole other story. Yeah, there's there's so much going on here. Like we didn't really talk about some of the subplots, but there's not there's not really time, and so you no, definitely need to read time. it. But anyway, yeah, there's just so much going on with this. I just can't even. I just keep gushing. And I was very sad it was not on the shortlist for the Baileys. But then again, all the picks for the Baileys are so good. That's very true. And we haven't talked about the winner yet because when we're recording this, the winner hasn't been announced. Just in case you're wondering. But we will talk about it everywhere else. Don't worry. 
I guess we're wrapping up our birthday month, but um, but we don't. I guess we're wrapping up our birthday month, but we have been celebrating all along, all month long, and we will keep doing so until all the way through the end of June. Yes, we have been celebrating all month, and thank you to everyone who's been participating in our photo challenge this month. It's been a lot of fun to see everyone's posts, and if you haven't participated yet, be sure to go and check that out. We're not quite sure what we're going to do with all the book posts uh, at the end of the month, but we'll definitely be reposting and sharing some lists and things of the books that you're recommending to us. Yes, we're very excited. We've had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, it's always exciting to see what other people are reading because we know what we're reading but it's kind of fun to see what everyone else is reading um, i guess well, well we're having a theme next month too oh yes we have a new kind of theme too so we decided to have a little fun and so we are going with the theme fictional universes and we are taking this either literally figuratively <laughs> or anywhere in between <laughs> absolutely uh which is so interesting because if you've listened to us, you know I'm a huge fantasy junkie and Autumn is more in the mystery thriller side. And so it'll be this be weird amalgamation <laughs> of mystery, fantasy, who knows what other kind of goodness. Yeah. So you won't want to miss that. Because <laughs> I am a very excited. I've already started reading one of my books and I'm just in love so that is our show thank you so much for listening and thank you all so much for the support that you've shown us in this past year as we've mentioned many times we would not be here without you and without your encouragement and your support so thank you for listening thank you for reviewing thank you for reading our blog thank you for tagging us in posts just thank you for everything we are very grateful and every time we hear from one of you we just get thrilled and it just encourages us to just do more with this podcast and to be better and to make it better all the time so that being said, thank you for listening, and you can find us between episodes. Um, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Instagram, at Autumn Privet, and you can find Kendra at KD Winchester. And um, thank you again for rating and review us, and if you haven't left a review yet, please be sure to do that. It helps other listeners find our podcast and find some more great books written by women. So thank you all so much for listening. Talk to you later, guys. Bye.